0: Church and uh, is there children's choir today? Yes, yes. And any kids in children's choir can be dismissed as well. I'd like to invite our guest speaker up here. Uh, as this is our missions conference, uh, it's great to have a, a guest speaker with us. And come on up here, Dick. This is Dick Camp, and he's uniquely suited to speak at our missions conference because he used to be the senior pastor of this church from 1965 to 1970. And has recently been a missionary of this church, which he'll tell you about in a minute. So, to, to speak to our church about missions is in a—he's in a great position. And you're like—you're still like running track and things like that. Is that right? Yes. You're like in like the geriatric Olympics or something, right? Don't you hold some records or close some records? Or yeah, yeah. yeah you're too modest to talk about that. It's pretty I'll cool. Mention it. You'll mention it. I, I, I want to hear. That's really cool. I will. You're still running uh, hundreds and two hundreds and. Very cool. So he's really an amazing guy who just never, never gives up. He's just always pushing on to something new, and God's used his life in a lot of ways. So I'm really psyched to have Dick Camp back with us. So can we just welcome him to the, pul- the pulpit here?
1: Thank you very First thing I'd like to do is read the scripture, which comes from the New Testament book of Philippians. I'm going to read the first 11 verses of this book. Chapter 1, 1 to 11. Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ, to the saints in Jesus Christ at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. It's right for me to feel this way about you since I have you in my heart. For whether I'm in chains or defending or confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. I'm delighted, and my wife, Regina, is with me, sitting uh, here next to Herb, Uh, delighted to be back home, South Shore Baptist Church in Hingham. We're thrilled to be part of a growing and dynamic church ministry and to be part of your exciting missionary conference. And as we come back, of course, there are so many memories that flood back into our lives because of our working together with you for these five years. But in coming back, I'm aware of a cosmic momentum, season to season, year to year, generation to generation. Time moves on, and whether we like it or not, it moves us. And our 50 years of Christian ministry has passed quickly. Memory is like a rearview mirror that as you're driving into the future, you look back on the road you've traveled. And looking back in the mirror of memory, I realize that half a century in the sweep of eternity is less than a picosecond. That's a trillionth of a second in the sweep of eternity. And yet, in God's reckoning these 50 years have been significant. I think of a 21-year-old college grad just starting seminary, joining the staff at the Park Street Church as a seminary intern. And we spent three great years there being mentored by Harold Ockingay and learning missions from that dynamic mission program. And then, after seminary, taking a little church up in East Rochester, New Hampshire, a poverty pocket, but a dynamic church. Tuesday, There was the only semi-pro football team in New Hampshire, worked out of Rochester. Tuesday night we practiced, Thursday night we practiced, Saturday night we played. And I was the sorest pastor in all of New Hampshire every Sunday in the fall. And then we came to Hingham, 1965. I was just the third pastor in this young church. And it was a maturing time for me as a pastor, and a maturing time for many of the families in the church as we were able to build them up, not only in a mission vision, but in what it meant to be a Christian. It was a great experience here in Hingham. And then to Gordon Conwell as the dean of students, where I had the opportunity to work with hundreds of young people preparing for ministry. And then to West Point, 22 years of being the chaplain, responsible for the entire religious program there and having a a dynamic Christian ministry and presence throughout the Corps of Cadets as we help these young leaders know Jesus Christ and to serve him and be peacemakers as God sent them around the world. From West Point to a Christian ministry in the National Parks, for 12 years to be the executive director. Forty-two of my 50 years, I was under your care. A member of this church, prayed for by this church, buoyed up in ministry by this church. The last 12 years of our ministry actually supported by this church financially as we led the Christian ministry in the national parks. And what came out of your investment? Each year, 200 to 250 college and seminary students would go into national parks From Alaska to the Virgin Islands, from the Grand Canyon to Acadia in Maine. On Sundays, they would lead worships, Christian worship services, 150 worship services every week in 75 sites in 30 national parks. And then during the week, they would work for concession companies, the hotels, restaurants and gift shops. And they'd be working beside and living beside hundreds of international students, many of whom had come from countries where the gospel is not welcome. And so there was a ripple effect from the national parks back to the nations that did not know of the gospel. It was a marvelous, marvelous experience. In the reading from Philippians 1 this morning, Paul looks into the rearview mirror, remembering fondly the people in Philippi with whom he had worked so closely. And when he looked, it brought joy to him. He says, I found myself praying for you with a glad heart. He remembered fondly those months and months of sharing the gospel and working among them. And I can say, I feel this way about you. I pray for Jeremy and I pray for this church two mornings a week. And when I do, my spirit smiles. Paul was convinced that the church of Philippi... Having begun a good work, God would continue to perform it or perfect it until the day that Jesus came back. And I can say the same for the South Shore Baptist Church. We are all men and women under reconstruction. God's not through with us yet. Being confident of this, that he who has begun a good work in you will continue to perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. So he had warm expression for his fellow believers when he said, I'm not just dreaming when I think this way about you. My prayers and hopes have deep roots in reality. You have, after all, stuck with me through thick and thin. God knows how much I miss you. And so he prays for them. He prays that their love will be mature. He prays that they will be discerning people. And this is what he said. This is my prayer. That your love will flourish and that you will not only love much, but well. Learn to love appropriately. You need to use your head and test your feelings so that that your love is sincere and intelligent, not sentimental fluff. Live a lover's life, circumspect and exemplary. A life Jesus will be proud of, bountiful and fruits from the soul making Jesus Christ attractive to all and calling everyone to the glory and the praise of God. Paul goes on to talk about his own experience being in jail in Rome. It was from that jail that he wrote this letter to the Philippians. But he said, you know, they tried to shut me up. Instead, they gave me a pulpit. The gospel was not changed. And whether the people were supporters or antagonists, the gospel was heard and was spread. There was a ripple effect that went through the corridors of Rome and beyond because of the witness of Paul. And what was his passion? Why did he feel that way? Verse 20, I think, is the key. He says, according to my earnest expectation and my hope, that in nothing I'll be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as always, So now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. For me to live is Christ. In other words, Paul is saying, I want Jesus Christ and his glory to be seen in my body. I want it to be a theater by which the glory of Christ is seen and observed. Why isn't that natural to all Christians? Paul pled in Romans 12, I beg of you, my brothers and sisters, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, your reasonable service. Fifty years ago, Virginia and I exchanged wedding vows and rings. And in our rings, we had our initials, RPC to BCV. The date, 9 6 58 and then Philippians 1:20. According to my expectation and my hope, in nothing I'll be ashamed. But with all boldness, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. Why did we pick that verse? We thought that's what God expected of all Christians, to be bold for our faith, put our faith on the line. So individually, and as a new husband and wife, we claimed that verse for our own. Would I do it again today? You bet I would. But in reflection, I wondered, why did we choose that verse, that commitment, selling ourselves out to the glory of God through Jesus Christ? There was an incident that took place two years earlier that had an effect. In 1956, we were juniors at Wheaton College. Our president had been a missionary in Ecuador. And several Wheaton grads joining some other missionaries were on a mission to reach an unreached tribe, the Alca Indians. In chapel, there were announcements each day about a, a mission to reach this tribe. We prayed. Then we heard that the mission had not gone well. And there was a possibility that these men were killed. And then came the word all five had ended up at the end of the spear. In time, we got to know more about Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, Roger Udarian, Ed McCulley, Elizabeth Elliot became a close friend. We remember the words of Jim who said, He is no fool who gives what he can't keep to gain what he can't lose. And somehow I associate from one of those or from that that group the verse Philippians 1.20. According to my earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing... I will be ashamed, but that with all boldness as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Think global. Act local. I learned that at the Park Street Church as that seminary intern. I was blessed to be part of a dynamic mission program, not far from here. And in those indelible years, I remember Dr. Ockenge saying, the mission of the church is first missions. God will bless the church that puts missions first. Think global. Act local. It was also his philosophy that to support that from the resurrection appearances of Jesus. He said, Jesus, after his resurrection, could have gone right back to the Father, but he didn't. He hung around for 40 more days. Why? He wanted to make sure that his disciples knew three things. His person, his program, and his power. His person, they needed to be absolutely sure that this was God who had taken on human flesh, who had literally died and been raised from the dead. That he wanted them to know his person, to be absolutely sure that this was God who had come among us. Second, he wanted them to know that he had a program, to take this word of reconciliation, that persons could have peace with God through Jesus and be changed from the inside out and take it to the world. Third, he wanted them to be sure that there was a power that came from God to equip them to do this. That was a powerful lesson for me. It's been part of my life and ministry. And I know this church has caught that and is practicing that as well. So I have a suggestion for the South Shore Baptist Church as you begin your missionary conference. The first is a little bit off the wall, but listen to me. The primary for venue for evangelism in Jesus' life was the meal, supper. Early on, people noticed how frequently Jesus was seen at meals with outsiders, the heathen, the unsaved. They even called Jesus a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of publicans and sinners. Remember the meal... I think it's in Luke 13, that Jesus had at Simon the Pharisee's house. He was sitting there with some of these these uppity-ups, and in came a woman who knelt down at Jesus' feet and started to massage his feet with her tears. They understood who this woman was. She's the local whore, prostitute. If he was who he claims to be, he certainly would know what kind of woman is ministering to him. And then Jesus said, my friend, my daughter, go. Your sins are forgiven. Go and sin no more. And then there was little Zacchaeus. Remember that tax collector who climbed up in a tree because he heard Jesus was going to pass by? Jesus stopped and said, Zacchaeus, come on down. I'm going to have dinner at your house today. And when Jesus finished that meal with the outsiders, he said, today salvation has come to this house. Oh, there was the call of Levi, another dinner meal, God's blessing, and people were changed. And then, of course, there was his favorite B&B up in Bethany with Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. Coffee was always on. And when they heard Jesus was coming, they'd bake the muffins, and if he brought his disciples. They just put more water in the soup. But Jesus spent time at meals. that People got to see him. They heard his story, and people were changed. Think global. Act local. In the epistles, there are many passages that show how a shared meal became a local practice in early church for participating in the Jesus work of salvation. And even today, in this mealtime which is becoming rarer in American homes, but even today, mealtime with family and friends and guests, is the most important natural setting for the working out of personal and social implications of the gospel. What a great place to be able to invite neighbors, hear their story, and let them hear your story, to invite guests and strangers to your home to share around your table for a meal, to hear your story, and for you to hear their story. It may be that the sharing meals in our home is the most natural form of sharing the Jesus work of salvation here. Hebrews 13, in fact, says this. Be sure to welcome strangers into your home. In doing so, some people have welcomed angels as guests without even knowing it. Someone else has said, always treat your guests as angels, just in case. So here's my suggestion to you. Think global, act local. Boston has thousands of international students working and mostly going to school in a city not far from here. They represent countries that are not reached with the gospel or where the gospel is not welcomed. Invite them to share a dinner meal in your home. Perhaps Thanksgiving is a good time or Christmas season. But invite them to come. And hear their story and let them hear your story. And the ripple effect can go to the ends of the earth. If several of you do it, get together and talk about how that interview went. And discuss the interactions. And maybe relationships can be built that will have far-reaching effect. The ripple effect has the potential of bringing Christ to the nations. Think global. Act local. This church does that. You have a global vision, a dynamic church where the witness goes out not only in this area, but to the ends of the earth through your strong mission program. Eugene Peterson has said, every movement we make towards God has a ripple effect. Touching family and friends, neighbors, and community. And that ripple effect goes out and spills over and makes history. One of my missionary heroes is a man by the name of Eric Little. Eric Little was born in China of missionary parents, grew up in Scotland. He was a great athlete. He was the equivalent of All-American in the Scottish rugby. He was also a sprinter. You probably knew about Eric Little in the movie Chariots of Fire. He was a fast runner. He qualified for the 100 meters in the 1924 Olympics. And on the way over to France, realized that the 100-meter trials was on Sunday. And he said, I can't run. I won't run on the Lord's Day. A lot of consternation in the team of Great Britain and the Olympic Committee. And finally, a couple days later, they found a compromise where one of the British 400-meter runners would step aside and let Eric Little take his place. In the 1924 Olympics, the champion of the 400-meter dash was Eric Little from Great Britain. After school, he turned his back on all the notoriety. He was known all through Scotland and England to go back to China as a missionary. He went, he served under extremely difficult conditions, married one of the uh, daughters of another missionary family. In time they had two daughters. And then the war clouds came, late 1939, 1940. China was not a good place to be. The Japanese moved in and made it very, very difficult for missionaries. Christian missionaries were told to go home. And Eric sent his wife and two daughters back to Canada where they had family. Eric and some of the other missionary leaders waited for the last ship to go out. And just before they boarded, Some wealthy Americans came, bought up the last passages, so these missionaries had to remain. The Japanese put him in a prison camp in China, and he spent his last year being a leader, an evangelist, a witness for Christ, an organizer to the glory of God. Just before the end of the war, Eric came down with a brain tumor and died in that prison camp. I'm 72 years old, and I live with the hope that my greatest contribution to the kingdom of God will still be ahead. In the words of the little book of Esther, who knows, but you've come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Two months ago, I ran in the track and field championships for masters in Spokane, Washington. It was a four-day meet. had the 100-meter trials and then the finals and the 200-meter trials and the 200-meter finals. By the fourth day, I was exhausted and a little hurting. Three of my teammates came up and said, Dick, we need you to run a relay. I said, not me. We need you to run in the 4x400 relay. I said, no way. I haven't run 400 meters in competition in 55 years since I was in high school. I said, think about it. They came back about five minutes later. He said Dick, Bob Light is hurt. He was our anchor man. He can't run. We need you. We just ask you to stride through and finish strong. He said, If you don't run, we can't run. So I said, Intellectually, it's ridiculous, but emotionally, I'll do it. So the six teams are lined up on the track, getting our final instructions. And one of the guys, Richie Rizzo, one of the quarter miler's. Leaned over and says, hey, Rev, say a prayer. And I don't know whether it was for my benefit or theirs, but we led a little prayer of thanks. They had me in the third leg, three great quarter-milers and me. But all they said is, Rev, run the best you can. Stride through and finish strong. And so I took the baton, that third leg, and I struggled through that quarter of a mile. Going back the last hundred meters, everything was shutting down and hurting. All I could hear was, finish strong, finish strong. And I got the baton into the hands of Mac Stewart from Houston, Texas. Mac, a great quarter mile, and he came around, and we won the gold. Stride through and finish strong. That's what I want to do, and that's what I want you as a church to do. Stride through and finish strong. Be on Jesus' Relay Team. You can't do it alone. But as a church, as we work together, we can do amazing things. Paul said it to the Corinthians, and I'll say it to the South Shore Baptist Church. You've all been to the stadium to see the athletes race. Everyone runs. One wins. Run to win. All good athletes train hard. They do it to get a gold medal that tarnishes and fades. You're after one that's gold eternally. I don't know about you, but I'm running hard for the finish line. I'm giving it everything I've got. No sloppy living for me. I'm staying alert and in top condition. I don't want to get caught napping, calling others into the race, and then missing out myself. 1 Corinthians 9 from the message. Folks, be on Jesus' relay team. Give it your best and finish strong. Amen.